Felt like I was coming for an altar call there for just a minute. If you would now, I would ask you to uh, stand with me for the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. Uh, And open in your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 4. And though we won't be only in Daniel 4, I want to kind of use this passage as a theme of this message. And so what I always like to do is, uh, I know we just prayed, but I'd like to pray again if we could. So pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for this time. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this word that you've given us, that you reveal yourself to us. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to obey all that we, we hear from your voice And uh, Lord, I pray that even through the weakness of the messenger that you would accomplish your purposes this evening. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Again, we're in Daniel chapter 4 and we'll beginning in verse 34. This is the word of the Lord. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High. And praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Now, I know that for the group that is here from Christ's covenant, that you guys are, even now in the evening, studying through the book of Daniel in your normal evening services. And and Westview Christian, the the group that is here from Westview, uh, as you know, we're preaching through Daniel in our normal morning services. And so what I didn't want to do this evening was to cover already familiar territory that John or I have already gone over. And yet I think that the book of Daniel has an extremely relevant message for us in our own days. And, and it seems uh, the longer we go and the more things happen in our country, it increasingly becomes so. And so let me very briefly set up some context for you before we begin to move through this Old Testament book. And so first, as many of you know, the book of Daniel is situated in the nation of Babylon, where Daniel and his fellow Israelites, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, have been carted off into captivity with the first wave of captives that were taken by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to bring them back to Babylon. And so right off the bat, we understand that what these, at the time, very young men were were in for was trial and difficulty. And now remember that the southern kingdom kingdom of Judah were suffering under this this, uh, trial uh, and and war and conquering uh, of Nebuchadnezzar as the just judgment of God for the idolatry and sin that had taken place within the covenant people of God. And I think if you were to take just a quick perusal of the minor prophets, uh, Habakkuk being one of them, that uh, sheds a lot of light on what exactly was taking place there in the nation of Israel leading up to this point. And so we're not going to cover too much of this material except to note that what the Jews were experiencing here was the righteous judgment of God against them. 
And so as we said, Daniel and his friends were taken in the early deportation and they were brought as the best and brightest of the Jews to be retrained in all the ways of Babylon. In other words, they were bringing them to propagandize them and, and, and fully indoctrinate them into all of their ways and practices. And by all appearances, they spent the rest of their living years in exile in Babylon. Now let me say first and foremost that I am not bringing this up this evening to stand before you and and make the unfounded claims and parallels between Israel and the United States. I'm not here to say that that we are Israel and, and because of that we have all of these covenant promises and if we break them then God sends us to judgment and if we repent then He brings us back. That's not the case. We as a nation are not Israel. And truly cannot as a nation claim those promises that were given to Israel. And yet, for all that, there is a very real sense in which we as the people of God, the Israel of God, the body of Christ, we absolutely do find ourselves in the very similar situation that Daniel and his friends were in. They were the faithful remnant who, like the rest, were taken into exile to live as faithful people of God in the midst of a pagan, unholy, wicked people in an unholy, wicked land. And so that in and of itself should cause us, I think, to sit up and take notice as to how Daniel and his friends lived as exiles. But let me with that also say that I'm not here this evening to give you five ways that we can all dare to be a Daniel. Because truth be told, and I'm sure John covered this uh, and, and said this, and I'm sure he's hit on it in his sermons thus far, as we did when we went through Daniel as well, that Daniel and his friends are not the heroes of the book of Daniel. In fact, even though they figure prominently in the accounts of the book, the overwhelming point and theme of this entire book is the absolute sovereignty of God. And He is the hero of this book. And it's this theme that we're going to dwell on this brief time this evening. And so the question, I think, would be, why this? And I think that if there was ever a time for this overarching theme of Daniel for the American church, that now is that time. You think about just a few of the parallels that I said I wasn't going to give, but now I'm giving to you. As a nation, we've been given much light, haven't we? As a nation founded on the Judeo-Christian ethic, built upon the Word of God, and yet we have neglected it to our own detriment, just as Judah had done. I think it's safe to say that as we experience the judgment of God as a nation, and, and friends, I think we could make the case that that's exactly the place where we're at now. We, the people of God in this nation, will go through this just as Daniel and his friends did. And so like the faithful exiles in Babylon struggling under trial and persecution and the temptation to compromise with the culture around us, unless the Lord grants widespread repentance and revival, we're going to be put to the test in many ways, just as they were put to the test. And so what I want to do this evening is exactly what the book of Daniel was attempting to do when it was written for those exiles in Babylon. And that's to give us as the people of God, hope and confidence in the midst of and in the face of trying times. That's the point, right? 
And we're going to do it the same way that Daniel did. We're going to focus upon the theme of the book, the absolute sovereignty of God. And now, let me say, first off, for the sake of time, this is not going to be an exhaustive study and survey of the entire book of Daniel. But what I want to look at is four different ways that God demonstrates His sovereignty in the book of Daniel. And so first, we're going to look at God's sovereignty over the lives of His own people, the covenant people. And then we're going to look at God's sovereignty over the nations. And third, God's sovereignty over the heavenlies. And then finally, bringing it all together, God's sovereignty over world history, which leads to its certain and purposeful end. And then we'll bring this to bear on our own situation as we wrap up. And so let's first jump right in here and look at God's sovereignty over the lives of His people. Now, I know it it seems like an obvious thing, right? If God is sovereign, He's sovereign over everything. And yet we know in a a very peculiar and particular way, God is sovereign over His people's lives. And so it's best to start right in the beginning. Daniel 1, verses 1 and 2, where we read this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now, hopefully, it's pretty obvious where we're headed here with this passage. And yet, so many times when we think about God's moving and His sovereign acts in the lives of His people, we think about the good things, don't we? And rightfully so, for we know that as James states in his epistle, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so inherently, we inherently our, our natural reaction in our lives to good things is, is to praise God, isn't it? To, to very boldly and readily proclaim that God is in control. Something good happens. Well, It must have been God. God is in control. Praise God. But what about when things go wrong? What about when things appear to be very unjust? Where is God in those times? Well, what we have here in Daniel is the very epitome of things going wrong. If you put yourself in their shoes, we see here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 that Nebuchadnezzar had come against Jerusalem and besieged it. And if you know anything about Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they were cruel and wicked people. But notice verse 2. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hands. And now understand that it's not even that Nebuchadnezzar just happened upon Jerusalem, that he's going off to conquer and and going through all of the, the known world and he just happens to stumble upon Jerusalem. That's not what the text says. Instead, God brought him there, and it was God who gave the Israelites into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And now it's almost understandable, isn't it, when we consider that Jehoiakim was an evil king. But friends, if we keep going on in the chapter, we find even that it wasn't just the wicked in Israel that were given over. It was also the faithful remnant. And we see that illustrated very clearly in chapter 1 with Daniel and his friends who were stripped from their families taken from their homes, were driven for hundreds of miles to the nation of Babylon, and to top it all off, they were made eunuchs in the household of God. That is not a good situation to be in. 
And so the sovereignty of God defies simple explanation, doesn't it? And now we don't have time to walk entirely through this book again, but I think we're all familiar with the test early on in Daniel's life, whether he and his friends would, would eat the choice food or not, or whether Daniel's friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah would face the threat or, or, uh, or of death or bow down before a golden idol or whether Daniel himself would remain faithful in prayer in defiance of the king's edict or, or, or not, again, at the very threat of death. And, of course, we know how each of these events plays out, don't we? Each and every time, the faithfulness of God on behalf of His people shines through. And yet, even in the words of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if God didn't save them, they still wouldn't bow down. And so as I said, each and every time the faithfulness of God on behalf of His people shines through, and truth be told, I think a case can be made that it was for this very purpose that God brought these specific Israelites to Babylon in the first place. But more than just moral lessons for us to be faithful and and stand up as believers under persecution and trial, there are a few key things that I think we can take from this. First, I think it's safe to say that when we look at how God has sovereignly worked in the lives of His people in the book of Daniel, we are comforted in in this fact, aren't we? And the fact is this, that there's no meaningless evil. Remember, God brought Nebuchadnezzar. God gave the Israelites into His hand. God orchestrated it, whether it was what we would consider the bad things and what we would consider the good. And ultimately, we know that He did it for His glory and for their good. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. But second, if we were to look at this entire book, we would see that not only does God determine the time of their captivity, but He also ordains their restoration to the land. That theme is specifically seen in chapter 9 as Daniel, led by the Spirit, prays a prayer of repentance and confession of sin on behalf of the people of God in direct response to his study of the Word of God given to Jeremiah. And God hears his prayer. And God sends Gabriel with word of their coming jubilee. And so why is this important? Well, what it means is that there is no out-of-control rogue element in all of the universe. It means that, yes, God chastises and disciplines His people, but it only goes as far as God desires and not one inch further. And so now I know that was brief, but I think it was sufficient to make the point. God is sovereign over His people. Now we also see here that God is sovereign over the nations as well. And so in chapter 2 of Daniel, we're immediately confronted with a crisis. You remember what's taking place here. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had had a dream and he wanted to know the answer to the meaning of the dream. But he didn't just want to tell someone the answer and have them give him the standard response that the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers would give him. He wants to ensure that he's not lied to, so he requires that they tell him the dream first and then give him the meaning. And of course, we know from our perspective and from the narrator's perspective, that's an impossible thing that they were asking. And they tell him as much. And so he orders them all to be killed, including Daniel and his friends. And now you know the story. Daniel hears about it, asks for time, goes to his friends, and they pray. 
And God revealed the answer to them. And notice Daniel's blessing of the God of heaven. Verse 20, he says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with Him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have made, and now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. And so now Daniel with this information goes to the king and he reveals to him the dream and the interpretation. And you remember what it was, a, a giant statue. Each of the parts represented uh, of the image represented a different kingdom that was going to be raised up by God. Nebuchadnezzar being the the golden head of the image which leads Nebuchadnezzar to set up his very own image for worship in the very next chapter and the confrontation with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. Now I'm not going to retell the story for the sake of time but each time a little more of Nebuchadnezzar's pride is chipped away as we go through his life until we get to chapter 4. And we see Nebuchadnezzar in the, in the midst of his pride surveying all that he has done in Babylon and all that he has built from the roof of his palace. And in his pride he says this, Is not this great Babylon which I have built my, by my power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth there fell a voice from heaven O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. And verse 33 says, Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. Friends, God is sovereign over kings and rulers of nations. And not only can He raise them up like He did with Nebuchadnezzar, but we see here that He can bring them down and humble them. Notice how the text continues. Nebuchadnezzar, having repented, or in the process of repenting, says this, At the end of these days, the end of the time that God had allotted, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Friends, what a beautiful statement about who this God is that we serve. And think about, this is probably the most comprehensive statement about the power and nature of God. And it was given from the mouth of a wicked pagan king who God humbled. Can you see the irony in all of that? And I think we could say that, and this is my opinion, that Nebuchadnezzar was beautifully converted to the true faith in the one true and living God, who then 
goes on to make probably this most articulate statement of the sovereignty of God in all of the Bible. And the point, I think, is pretty clear. And again, we could talk about Belshazzar and God's handwriting on the wall or Darius the Medes conquering of the Babylonians the very night that the vision was given to Belshazzar. Or we could look at the decree that God gave and moved in Cyrus to make to commission the building and restoration of the fallen house of God in Jerusalem and the freeing of the Israelites to return to their homeland. But friends, the point is this. God can move the hearts of men. He can raise up nations and just as swiftly and easily He can bring them down. And He can even take a wicked, evil, pagan king and humble him and bring him to faith and use him to proclaim His glory. And that should be a comfort for us. And so God is sovereign in His people's lives. He's sovereign over the nations. But we will also see in Daniel that He is sovereign over the heavenlies as well. Chapter 10 of the book of Daniel especially highlights this aspect of the sovereignty of God. In chapter 10 we see, if you will, the curtains thrown back. And we get an inside look into the spiritual conflict that's happening right behind the physical world that we live in every day. Chapter 10 Reads this in verse 10. And behold, a hand touched me, set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. Now here we find Daniel troubled. He had seen a vision and he was humbled And he had humbled himself and prayed and sought for the Lord to understand the vision that he had seen about the future of his people. And it was in response to this humble request of Daniel that God had sent an angel to him. And now on the surface, this would appear as though the angel was hindered in his bringing the answer to Daniel's prayer for understanding. That's, That's what he plainly says. By a prince or angel of Persia, presumably a reference to the spiritual powers that the Apostle Paul speaks of in Ephesians 6 when he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And now again on the surface, this would leave us asking ourselves, and I think rightly so, if God is sovereign, how can these things be? Friends, we have to remember that the cosmic powers, those spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, are indeed powerful. Powerful enough that in this case, the angel sent to Daniel was delayed for three weeks, but only for three weeks. And I want you to notice how it ends in verse 18 of chapter 10. He says again, One having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? 
But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And so the angel again strengthens Daniel and he delivers to him the message that he was sent to deliver. And that was a message of encouragement. But now we need to make note of two things. First, the angel says he's going back to fight with the prince of Persia. And afterward, the prince of Greece was going to come in. So what is significant about this? Well, friends, this is exactly what the Lord had revealed to Nebuchadnezzar in the great image that he saw in his dream. And it's exactly what Daniel saw in his first vision with the four beasts that come up out of the sea, each representing a kingdom. That the Babylonian Empire would be conquered by the Medo-Persians who would then be conquered by the Greeks. In other words, what these spiritual forces were doing in resisting God and delaying His messenger angel is exactly what God had ordained in the first place. And like wicked men who God routinely uses in His sovereign power, wicked men who of their own accord and in their own evil hearts do wicked deeds by their own desires... God uses them in spite of their designs. And He takes what they meant for evil and He uses it for His own glory and for the good of His people. Exactly as it says in Proverbs 16.4, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. And I submit to you, that goes for the heavenly beings as well. And while these spiritual forces of evil do what they do, the reality is, is that they go no further and do no more than the Lord allows. And we see that right here in the text. The prince of Persia delayed God's angel, but only delayed. And when he has served his purpose, he is done away with, and the prince of Greece will come exactly as God designed and said would happen. And so that's the first thing. Second, I want you to notice also that the angel reveals to Daniel what is written in the book of truth. Which implies what? Well, it implies that God has already written it down. Do you see that? For He knows the end from the beginning. And so God is sovereign in His people's lives. He's sovereign over the nations of the earth. He's sovereign over the heavenly beings. And last, and really this point encompasses all of the rest of them. And you'll see how they fit together. In the book of Daniel, we see that God is sovereign over all of world history and is leading and guiding it to its certain and purposeful end. And I submit to you that what He does in His people's lives and what He does in the nations and what He does in the heavenlies works to that end. And again, we don't have time to cover everything, but I I want you to see God's sovereign driving, moving force, driving the course of world history to its culminating end. So again, we turn to the dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar and then interpreted by Daniel. And I want to read this passage to you. Daniel 2, verse 31. It says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces." 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And so that was the dream. And now what follows is the interpretation of the dream. And so the text continues. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, and it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay." And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in those days, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation sure. And so now understand that whole sermons have been done just on this passage. And so what I'm going to do is just cut right to the chase. Remember that we said that God is sovereign over His people. He's able to bless them. Remember, God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm and brought brought them into the promised land. But as we saw, God is also sovereign over their judgment. And it was God who we said who's sovereign over the nations, who called the Babylonians, who raised them up as a world power, who put put into their hearts to come against Judah and to conquer and take them into captivity. It was God who then brought the Medes and Persians to execute His judgment on Babylon and to issue the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. It was God who, after the Medo-Persians, raised up the Greeks as Alexander the Great conquered the whole known world and began the process that they call Hellenization, bringing in Greek culture, bringing in this common language. And it was God who as was revealed to Nebuchadnezzar then raised up the Romans, the fearsome fourth beast who conquered the three that came before and who established the Pax Romana, the the Roman peace, who brought order and infrastructure and roads throughout the known world. And I think you can see where I'm going with this, right? It was in their reign that we saw, as we saw in the vision, that God raised up a stone, hewn without human hands, that struck the statue that represented the entire world system, all of the empires of the world. And that stone grew into a mountain and it filled the whole earth. And how did He do that? 
Well, remember, it was the Romans who brought in crucifixion. And now, I bring, and now bringing in this last aspect of God's sovereignty, His sovereignty over the heavenlies, over even the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Think about how all these things come together. God used Satan himself, who in his own wicked plans and desires, thinking that he had waited for his opportune time, he entered into Judas and betrayed Christ, and having given him over to the Jews and the Romans, thought that his triumph was at hand. And you think about the sovereignty of God. He is sovereign, as the apostles Peter and John said in Acts 4, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do what? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And in that culminating point of human history, as nations were raised up and brought down, as Gentiles and Jews, and as even the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, in all the power uh, that the wickedness of man and demon can summon, the Son of God was crucified on the cross. He died and was buried, and then three days later rose from the tomb as King of kings and Lord of lords. The stone hewn without human hands is the stone that the builders rejected, the stone that became the chief cornerstone, the stone that grew into a mountain and filled the whole earth. And now the point, I think, is this. Friends, as I said in the very beginning of this message, what could be more relevant for us in the here and now, in our own time? Now, obviously, the gospel is relevant at all times. But I think as we watch our nation implode, and I'm not just being hyperbolic, as we see the inklings of persecution for anyone who dares in their their own hubris to uphold a biblical view of marriage or a biblical view of homosexuality or or a biblical view of transgenderism or a, a biblical view of the sanctity of human life, as we begin to suffer for these things, And as we face a coming election season, and and in a very real sense, we are as Christians increasingly living as exiles in a very pagan, wicked culture. And that's why I think this is so relevant to us. But Christian, as the angel told Daniel, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. Because if there is anything at all that we learn from this survey of the of Daniel and from the very course of world history it's this and friends this should be our ultimate comfort and we were talking earlier the sovereignty of God is such a blessing and comfort for us our God is sovereign over it all and he can raise up rulers and I submit to you he does for whatever purpose it is wicked or otherwise it doesn't really matter Because they will do His will and not even the very powers of evil in the heavenly places can resist it. And the victory 
is already one in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And therefore, I think we can take courage, friends, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for who you are. We're so grateful that that you move mountains, that you have hewn out of a uh, out of the earth this stone, not by human hands, that smashes everything and turns into this great kingdom and this mountain that fills the whole earth. We're thankful for this stone that the builders rejected. We're thankful for all that you've done for us in Christ. And Lord, we take great comfort in knowing that, that you're in charge, that you're in control, and that your will will be done. And so, Lord, help us to walk in, in, in peace in these things. Help us to walk boldly and, and, and with great confidence as those who see beyond the here and now. And so, Lord, we thank you for these, these things that you give us. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for the promises that are there for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you would, I'd ask you to stand with me for the benediction. It's 2 Peter 3.18. And it says, Grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now, uh, Blake wanted me to be sure, and, and, and 